Welcome to the Film Comment Podcast. I'm Clinton Crute. And I'm Devika Girish. We're the editors of Film Comment. This week, we sat down with critics Kay Austin Collins and Mayuk Sen to talk about one of the most enduring motifs in movie history, the double. We delved into a hand-picked selection of mirroring movies, including Brian De Palma's Femme Fatale, Susan Seidelman's Desperately Seeking Susan, Carlos Saura's Peppermint Frappe, and Bimal Roy's Madu Mati a film released the same year as, and with some eerie similarities to, that ur-text of double features, Hitchcock's Vertigo. As we discovered, doubles, mirrors, and dubious impersonations can be found in nearly every era and genre of cinema, with the trope generating an apparently endless variety of themes, narrative forms, and interpretations. We hope you enjoy our conversation. Today, we're really excited to be joined by two of our favorite critics, one of whom was on the podcast recently, and the other has a piece coming up in this week's Film Comment Letter. I'll let them introduce themselves. Cam? Hi, I'm Cam, Kaufson Collins from Critic at Rolling Stone. Hello, I'm Mayuk Sen. I'm an author, teach food writing at NYU, and a film comment contributor. Yes, and... Uh, if you're listening to this on Tuesday, the day this comes out, then uh, make sure to look out for Thursday's letter, which features a piece by Mayuk. And I won't spoil what it's about because it's a really um, fun and unusual and uh, very fascinating topic. But, you know, both Cam's and Mayuk's writing is always a gift that you should be eagerly waiting for. So... Now that I've buttered you up. <laughs> it's interesting that that uh, Mayuk is appearing twice in film comment mm, formats this two week. Two times. Because two times we get twice the Mayuk. Yeah. And if you want, you'd almost say that he's doubling up. Or uh-huh. we're doubling up. Oh, I get it. <laughs> Which God, brings us so to the subject <laughs> of today's podcast. <laughs> That's right, folks. <laughs> Movie doubles. <laughs> so uh, this week, you know, we just thought we'd do something different and delve into a theme that's very common in cinema. I mean, from the very early days of movies, uh, which is doppelgangers. Vertigo is kind of the urtext, maybe, of that whole trend of cinema. But you can find doppelgangers in movies, like in almost every movie, if you look hard enough, I feel. You know, movies are so obsessed with the ideas of dream logic and uncanniness and, you know, the idea of, like, finding patterns in this in this crazy, disordered world of, your, uh, of ours. So there was a lot to pick from um, for this podcast, but I think each of us uh, singled out a couple movies that we thought were really interesting spins on this idea. And I am very excited about Cam's because uh, I have to say the movie that he picked, which I will let him introduce, was on the cover of a past film comment issue. And it definitely has doppelgangers, but it also has so much more going on. And Cam, tell us about it and also why you picked that one. So I chose uh, Brian De Palma's 2002, I guess it's a cult classic. It's certainly not a critical classic, I've learned. 
Femme Fatale, starring Rebecca Romaine and Antonio Banderas, and it's a, a great cast. But the reason that I, I chose it is, first of all, it's, a, it's one of my favorite films. Um, it's a film that's very dear to my heart. So I'm always thinking about it. This is not the first time that I've used it for something. I presented it at BAM um, in the old days, in the pre-pandemic days. I couldn't even tell you what year that was because I have no sense of when anything before 2020 was, but not that long ago, but a, a little bit ago. Um, and it just, it was the first film that came to mind. I think when you emailed me about this, I emailed back pretty quickly and said, oh, Femme Fatale, um, any excuse to talk about it? In part because I just think this film pulls off a thing that I, I think films as a medium um, are uniquely poised to pull off, but which I don't think is often achieved, which is just the complete pleasure of coincidence, the complete, the, you know, the erotic thrills and the other things that are going on. It is, it is, it is in so many ways an erotic thriller, but it is a, it is a deeply ridiculous film that is only better and more pleasurable for it, for me, which is a thing that you know, I've seen a lot of ridiculous movies. There are a lot of ridiculous movies, um, but they don't always manage to turn that into an asset in the way that this film does. And the doubling at the center of it, um, the doublings at the center of it, um, I think a part of that, I mean, just for people who haven't seen it, I'm not gonna, this is, it came out in 2002, but I'm, I'm not going to spoil it because actually I think a lot of the pleasure of this movie is is not really knowing what's what's going on. I have to say, I saw it uh, for the first time this weekend after you picked it, Cam, and every turn was a surprise. I mean, every single turn was just yeah. a complete. It surprises you know, me turn. when I watch yeah. it. I mean, so it starts with this. It basically, I mean, it's De Palma, right? So this is someone who if you were to reduce him to a handful of things, uh, split screens and variations on various themes by Hitchcock. But also doubles. And doubles, exactly. All, all big in his work. Body double, sisters. Um, body double, another big favorite of mine. Um, sisters, another favorite of mine. Yeah, so, so it's very much consistent in that way. But it, it starts off, I think, by establishing so much of what it's about in the opening shot, in a scene of Rebecca Romaine watching Barbara Stanwyck and Double Indemnity, but you see Rebecca Romaine on screen in the reflection, um, in the nude, and it, it becomes a setup for this heist at the Cannes Film Festival, where the film that's being premiered is playing at the same time as the film that we're watching, and some of the film that we're watching is being seen again because this is a De Palma through surveillance footage, but there are a lot of things going on at once. But really the important thing to know is that Rebecca Romaine's character gets away with some jewels that she's not supposed to get away with. And it sets in motion this problem for her throughout the film of 
how does she stay alive when there are people who want her to be killed? And the way that she accomplishes this is a mix of chance and just coincidence, the best feats of, 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 of just good timing you could possibly imagine, but also something that arrives in the end that I think makes us question a lot of that. Um, there's this, there's another level to this film that I think is one of the great joys of the movie. Um, and every time I rewatch it, I became, I become more sensitive to the things that are telling me what this movie is actually doing. Um, but I also, I just remember when, when Metrograph a number of years ago had a De Palma um, retrospective and it was not my first time seeing the film, but it was the time that, that really secured for me how easily the film lets you drift into a kind of dream logic. Um, and just a lot, a lot depends on Rebecca Romain, you know, her character at one point meets a guy on a plane who happens to be very rich and then they wind up getting married and going to America. And then she is pretending to be a French woman in America, which is the thing that we don't see but we do see her come back to France where she does not want to be because there are people there who want to kill her. Um, and, and it becomes a film in part about just the, the danger and the violence of the camera. It's, it's a movie in which Antonio Banderas plays uh, and kind of ex paparazzo who's sort of desperate. Um, is this the, is this the movie that uh, the, the famous, I actually, I'm going to, uh, Boldly admit that I, I have not seen yeah Femme Fatale and I but is the the Chef's Kiss Antonio Banderas? Me? So for a long time I thought so, but no, I actually forget which film that's from. But um, mm. no, but that shot in that meme looks like it could come from this movie because Antonio Banderas spent a lot of time in his apartment um, with a camera. In, in a setup that that feels a bit with a balcony that that feels a little bit akin to that moment, which is why I kind of assumed that it did, but it, it didn't. Um, but you know, this movie is interesting to me because, um, I mean, Devika, you you mentioned that Vertigo is in so many ways uh, an urtext for for doppelgangers and and other things in cinema, and it is, I think, a film that a lot of us come back to, uh, both film lovers and filmmakers. What I think is really interesting about this film is that it takes some of the core things that are happening in Vertigo in one sense, there's the, the obsession with the image of a woman and turns that into a problem for the femme fatale. Um, the problem of the image that circulates of her throughout this, because remember, this is someone who does not want to be seen. If you can imagine the worst case scenario for someone who runs away with very dangerous men's jewels is for her to wind back up in that country and be the wife of a diplomat and uh, have paparazzi snagging her photo and plastering it all over the city. That is like the worst thing that can happen to her. How she gets out of that is for me, part of the crux of what makes this a femme fatale movie. But what if we reimagined Vertigo as one in which the, the alluring image of the woman at its center um, was the image of a femme fatale, which is to say that she 
is also scheming and working against Scotty's desires. And I think for me in, in Ben Patel, Scotty, the closest approximation we get to him is Antonio Banderas, except it's to Ben Patel. So he is sort of noir-esque in the sense of being um, weak and weak to her wiles and all of these things, a little desperate, you know, it, it's, it's a fascinating characterization. There's a great Antonio Banderas um, gay imitation that he does when he's also pretending to be someone else. But you know, it's a movie. About, it's a movie about a a, a a jewel thief who is just unusually smart, but also has a very rich imagination. Is the way that I would put it. Um, and the movie winds up being about that in unexpected ways too. It's really I'm t I'm talking around a lot because I really I think that people this movie didn't make a ton of money. When it came out, it was trashed by critics, except for you know smart people. Roger Ebert gave it four stars. Always love him for that. Great, great guy. Um, makes me forget that Crash was his number one movie of that year um, in one fell swoop. This completely makes up for it. Although you just um, reminded everybody, I think. I do, well, I do. I do like I you know got to keep the historical record straight. You know, true, um, true. We, we do we do need to acknowledge our flaws. Uh, but you know, but but this is a movie that many people just didn't quite get but if you fall into the logic of what this film is trying to do what really emerges is how smart Rebecca Romaine's character is in this and her ability to play on multiple identities throughout this film as a femme fatale um, but also Brian De Palma as a filmmaker already obsessed with visual doubling doubling of locations um, the way that it suffuses this film, the way that Antonio Banderas has a replica of the scene outside of his window that he's been taking in photographs that in one amazing shot syncs up with the view from the window and continues the outside indoors into his apartment. All these, all these wild visual things um, that De Palma does while also just giving this character the license to I mean, some of the tricks that she pulls in this movie, um, man, are just utterly uh, thrilling to me. Um, her her ability to 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 wield the power over her image while also being subject to the violence of that image um, and the danger of it is just I just never seen anything like it. And you really do have to go with it. You have to go with the coincidences. You have to go with the doubling, you have to go with the bad brunette wig. Um, not my favorite Rebecca Romaine look when she's when she's playing the American. Um, all these things, it just, man. And then just a, a thing that gets rewritten in the story by the end, um, a, a scene of violence. It just, uh, mm. I could talk about this movie all day. I just love it. <laughs> well, I, I kind of have a question uh, for you about it and about the doubling, what really struck me is this very explicit and erotic um, sex scene in the opening of the movie, which is so central to the heist. And, you know, it's her seducing a woman, a model who's wearing the, the jewels that you've been talking about. In the bathroom at Cannes. <laughs> this like gold snake. 
uh, studded yes. with diamonds that she wears Iconic. as a kind of, I, I don't know what to de- describe it as. It's like a weird halter, completely topless otherwise. And it's just this snake made out of gold and diamonds that she's, you know, wearing around her torso. So first of all, I was thinking that security Met- on it. Yeah. <laughs> when when the Met Gala did their camp uh, theme, why didn't anyone, you know, redo that look? You know, now that's a look that's that just is so utterly been. minimalist camp. You know, I mean, it's so excessive and uh, minimalist at the same yeah. time. But how Rebecca Romain gets you know, gets it off the woman is literally by seducing and having sex with her in a bathroom. There's some other twists, you know, that recontextualize that scene. But it just made me think of the relationship between queerness and doubling also in this movie. And you you mentioned the, you know, queer caricature sort of or masquerade done by Antonio Banderas in that scene as well. And there is something here about Rebecca Roman's like fascination with with the jewels kind of goes beyond the jewels, you know, it it extends to the wearer of the jewels. And then also her ability to control her image seems to come from the fact that she maybe doesn't desire men. So there's like this splitting between uh, the men she manipulates and the people she desires. So it the way the movie intersects those two things was very fascinating. And I don't know if you had any, any thoughts on that as mm. a, a movie about like, queer doubling you know right i mean she has a girlfriend um uh, you know part of the way that part of the way that her works um is that there's you know there's a woman in her life whose whose uh presence is complicated because once once rebecca man has to take on this other identity um the role that the girlfriend plays in the life becomes limited obviously um but but also the girlfriend herself it should, by the time we see her, should be reminding us of the woman in the bathroom scene. Um, but yeah, I think you're exactly right. And I think one of the actually, this is also a deeply funny movie because of certain gags that are very aware of the ridiculousness. And in the scene that you're talking about in the bathroom, one of them is that, I mean, the, the, the thing that has to happen is Rebecca Romain is, is seducing this outfit off of this woman bit by bit and kind of kicking it under the bathroom, under the bathroom stall door for one of her partners to one who's going to be coming after her for the rest of the movie to kill her, um, to collect. And there's this great scene where you see the silhouettes of the two women having sex and the guy outside is not even looking at them. <laughs> He's looking at the jewels. And he's replacing the jewels with fakes. Right, he's he's providing a fake outfit under it. Yeah, so this like theme of replication, and it just starts there. Yeah, I mean, and it's it's very smart. I think it's really it's a kind of a smart scheme, and it's just smart in the ways that it provides these circumstances for her to you think have to think her way out of that you realize she has already fought her way out of by the time you arrive at them. The way that she's so far ahead of you. Um, and what the end of the film does to the implications of our sense of where we are and our understanding relative to hers. Um, the way that it pushes you back into the movie to think through everything that's happening is fascinating. But she, she is a femme fatale who 
I mean, I think it's one of Rebecca Romaine's just great, greatest performances, in part because of some of the gestures that she provides, um, her physical capabilities through this movie, the opening scene, the way that she, with her slicked back hair, hands her passport over and does this eye-eye, like it's wordless on her end. She's just getting the details of what the operation's supposed to be, but she, she, she is physically operating at the edge of the frame in a way that I find so, it's like she is in control of a frame that is not even focused on her and her gestures and inserting herself into the frame at key, in, key, in key ways just give her power over that image in a way that should be alerting us early on to how much smarter she is than us just as a visual presence. But she knows her sexual power. She is a femme fatale. So another of the best scenes in this film is this bar fight <laughs> that she stages. And one of the joys of it is this moment where she just like kicks back and just watches the men fight. It's kind of like in, in The Searchers where uh, the young woman who's getting married, the men start fighting over her and she's just like watching from the steps with this look of just intense glee over this drama that she's set up. It's like one of those iconic, you know, now, now boys, don't fight over little me um, setups that, you know, she is, but it's a scene of, of her having, you know, she's holding the reins and these men, I mean, it's also just a good example of how we wouldn't have femme fatales if men had common sense. Men weren't silly. <laughs> if men were not, it's kind of silly. Rebecca Romaine would not get away with, I mean, Antonio Mendares, come on, man. How do you not see? But, but I don't want to reveal too much, but a, a good case against the intelligence of men, I think. I think it's the, the way you've described it makes me think about the fact that doubling is essentially like a cliche at this point, And in many ways is kind of drained of whatever meaning it originally had in Vertigo. Or if it is, it does have that meaning, it's only really accessed through this kind of camp context um, at, at this point. And I'm wondering, and, or like some kind of, I mean, itself, like to, to, to when you describe the plot, it, it's the plot itself is a doubling of vertigo at this point, or, you know, where, and so like De Palma seems to be entirely aware of that as you describe it. Um, so how does, I guess my question re, re, refocuses like back onto the idea of doubling, like how does, how does that that mirroring of characters, the characters changing the, the false, like you have knockoffs, right? Knockoff jewels, knockoffs of knockoffs of knockoffs of movies, of plots, of themes. Um, I'm just sort of free associating at this point, <laughs> but, uh, but I'm interested in this idea of, of the idea of the cliche kind of only being accessed through kind of a humorous treatment or the meaning behind this, what has become cliche being accessed through the humorous treatment. You know, I have some thoughts on that also related to to the movie that I picked, um, which uh, it, it's this Hindi movie called Madhumati, which actually came out the same year as Vertigo, so 1958. And it's so similar to Vertigo. And it's completely sincere, even though if you watch it today, you have to watch it with a sort of this awareness of, okay, this was a movie made in a different time. It feels campy. From today's well, same point as of view. I think Vertigo and most Hitchcock does, you know, 
to a certain extent. Right. I mean, this to a slightly greater extent, because it is actually a reincarnation plot. So the doubling comes from, you know, an actual supernatural reincarnation. And what I was going to say about your question, Clint, is, you know how this, um, I, I, I was actually writing about this recently when I wrote about Undina and, you know, because I was thinking about a Christian Petzold's use of doubles. Um, and, you know, doubles and coincidences and doppelgangers are classic melodramatic themes. And they are, you know, if you look at the theory of melodrama, it's the this idea that uh, a world in which coincidences and acts of fate make sense is sort of restoring a kind of moral order to a secular world where we're, where there's no longer belief in a greater power or a greater narrative, right? Where people no longer necessarily believe in destiny uh, or these kinds of more spiritual ways of looking at the world. And so I think, especially in the modern world, this idea that things can somehow fall in place, that there can be these kind of aberrations because doppelgangers are do feel like aberrations in an existence that we assume is unique and randomized. The fact that we can find some kind of meaning in this random world feels like maybe an old-fashioned idea for a modern and more secular world. So like by recognizing somebody as a double, you, you, you're catching a glimpse of some pattern, some hidden pattern, some hidden figure behind the scrim of reality. Right. And to make sense of that, you know, it's it's hard to make sense of that because it feels like acknowledging that there is something mysterious uh, that's in the way the world works that you can't grasp. And femme fatale, it's not just the doubling, it's full of crazy coincidences and especially the ending i won't spoil it because you're right cam like it is just the alignment of such absolutely random events to produce a very particular outcome in favor you know of the people we're rooting for in the film so it's kind of this um reinvestment of faith in the world right the good guys will win ultimately through accidents of fate but also, you know, what if we think of the femme fatale and other kind of stock archetypes as people who are aware of these patterns and see them as things that they can wrest control of, things that are opportunities. So what's interesting about femme fatale and the context of what you're saying, Devika, that I think is so interesting is what if there's someone outside of that order who sees it before we do and uses it to their advantage? Like what if there's someone who recognizes the opportunity, you know, sees in a doppelganger a new life that they might lead? Um, but also again, in the context of Bempatel, what that means and where that operates in terms of reality is, is more of a question mark than at first appears. And that also, I think, is something that's worth saying in the context of what you're saying, that, um, you know, in the context of thinking about melodrama, but also we're talking about cinema, so just thinking about in the context of imagination, um, the fantasy of order, the fantasy of order as an advantage that we can, that we can have as people trying to operate beyond it, 
um, the fantasy of a double as a new life. Um, what if that is just fantasy, but also what if a film accompanies the femme fatale or that were everyone else, you know, or any other kind of archetype um, in going so far down that rabbit hole that even the audience doesn't know. Um, which is something that I think is interesting in the context of Vertigo as, as a kind of urtext for both of these films, because um, when we go down the rabbit hole in Vertigo, it's by the person who's, it's with alongside the person who's subject to the deception and subject <laughs> to the confusion. Um, and other variations on that, I think see other opportunities for people to have relationships to, to that doubling that are beyond obsession and confusion, but are rather the empowered, <laughs> you know, the empowered opposite of those things. Well, yeah, it's uh, artificiality, but also, um, what is it, fantasy, right? But those, but those are the structures by which we create meaning out of chaos, I guess. And so there's two, those, and that's a two-sided coin, two, double-edged sword. Let me think right. of another one. <laughs> well, that's why I think Madhumati is so interesting, if I may, I may segue into that one. Uh, I, I was interested in talking about it because it takes place in a very fatalistic world, you know, in a world where people actually do accept reincarnation, where karma is a real thing. And so it works in a in a very different way. And it also has a really crazy and convoluted plot so i'll try a very short pricey i see uh, mayuk nodding in sympathy it, yeah it, it's been years since i've seen it but i i do remember the very convoluted plot so go ahead <laughs> good luck right and that's another you know thing of these a lot of doubling movies you know these nested plots that that build around them and so in this case uh there's this guy uh played by dilip kumar who was a really big Hindi uh, film star who uh, is a doctor and his wife and son and little baby, uh, infant son, are arriving from a trip and he's on his way to um, the railway station to receive them. And there's a landslide or something. I don't exactly remember. There's some kind of natural disaster or a storm or something uh, that basically ensures that he means that he's stuck. And so he and his crew take refuge uh, in this abandoned old mansion. And there he sees a portrait of himself. You know, there's a portrait of a man who is who is exactly like him. And this triggers a vision uh, or a memory of a past life where he was the manager of a timber estate. And he he's like, and so then you go into this second narrative of this film where this character is a manager at a timber estate. And uh, there's a landlord, this like, you know, extremely evil, you know, drooling, sneering landlord. I mean, such a beautiful <laughs> caricature of an evil landlord uh, who lives in a giant gothic mansion. Um, and he clashes with this guy, with our protagonist a lot. And it, the protagonist, in the meantime, also falls in love with a local tribal girl. There is some problematic tribal uh, <laughs> appropriation and imagery in this film, but it was made in 1958. Uh, and he falls in love with this girl and because the landlord is, you know, after him and they have this uh, rivalry now, the landlord abducts the girl and she dies while he's trying to rape her, basically, while he's chasing her. She falls off uh, a balcony. So again, like so similar to Vertigo, you know, in the in the nature of her death. 
And the protagonist is, you know, Dilip Kumar is very sad and mopes around and sings sad songs. And then one day he sees a woman who looks exactly like her, uh, except she's dressed differently because she's an urban tourist. She's a tourist from the city and she's on vacation in the forest. And she looks exactly like the woman he lost. And so he decides to use her to find out what happened. And he concocts this plan where he dresses her up as his lost love and sends her to the landlord's mansion to basically like scare him into confessing. Uh, and then some supernatural stuff happens. I won't ruin it because it's it's this incredible gothic finale, but let's just say there are ghosts involved. So, you know, the film isn't just ghostly. I knew there were ghosts. I had a feeling. <laughs> Yeah, so you know, it goes there, uh, you know, and then anyway, the landlord like gets his due. And we return to the present day framework, you know, remember when three hours ago, there this guy was going to fetch his woman, uh, his wife, <laughs> this guy was going to fetch his wife from the railway station. And his wife turns out to also look exactly like, you know, the other two women. So this is actually like, not doubles. This is a movie with triples. There are three versions uh, of the same woman. And versions of the same man too, right? Or yeah, he's, yeah. He's reincarnated. And he's reincarnated as well. And first of all, it's crazy to me that this movie came out the same year as Vertigo. I'm saying this repeatedly, but it's the same basic plot. And I was talking about this with uh, my roommate and I was saying, isn't that strange? And she said, well, you know, that was a time when people world over were starting to think about psychoanalysis and, you know, Jungian psychoanalysis. So it's actually not that strange. And this movie was written by Ritwik Ghatak, who is one of my, you know, uh, favorite filmmakers, like one of the absolute greats of Indian cinema, uh, Bengali director, most well-known for The Cloud-Capped Star. He, uh, I read a lot of his writing. He was obsessed with Carl Jung and uh, the ideas of, psychoanalytic archetypes and he was also really interested in conjoining those ideas with mythology you know Hindu mythology and sort of uh, creating these narratives that would open up these existential you know um, these the existential vacuousness of a lot of contemporary society in India at the time where you know uh, he was a staunch Marxist and, uh, you know, amid the violence of nationalism and partition and independence, uh, these stories were were connecting the dots between, or, or were kind of, I think, exposing what um, this bourgeois Hindu mythology, you know, the ways in which, or what they revealed about, you know, the collective psyche. And so it's very interesting how, I mean, this this was a big blockbuster hit by the way this was one of the top this was the top grossing movie of that year you know remained one of the top grossing uh, movies of that decade uh was Bimal Roy's you know most successful film uh, Bimal Roy also a, a great Hindi director and so it's very strange that Ritwik Ghatak who usually had these very artistic experimental melodramas wrote this film you know full of big stars and which is very clever and very intelligent in the things it's doing with psychoanalysis and archetypes and myths, but it's also a classic like Bollywood pod boiler because uh, Mayuk's going to talk about another movie, a, a Indian movie uh, with doppelgangers. Indian cinema loves doubles. It loves double roles. You know, it loves karma and it loves like the big, bad, rich guy getting his due at the end. So... 
I'm always fascinated by how the movie hits all those notes. I mean, it's interesting that the double that we don't talk that we haven't talked about is Oedipus too, as a double <laughs> when we're talking about psychology. But that kind of and that and that storyline appearing where like the the prince the prince and the pauper type of storyline. Right. And actually what is I think what I find very interesting about this movie is um all of Bimal Roy's works were more traditional, I would say, and really none of them end with what this movie achieves, which is the actual dismantling of the landlord, you know, and landlord characters were so common in movies of the time as the embodiment of, you know, the e of evil because of India's transition from feudal to a modern democratic society. But in this movie, the landlord actually, you know, is punished, which happens through the working of myth, which happens through the working of traditional, you know, Indian myth. And it's sort of this, uh, I find it to be a great synthesis of, you know, or, or this great bridging of tradition and modern humanist values um, and, a, and a kind of exploration of how myth and, and ritual and, yeah, tradition can actually be used to build a more equitable vision. I may be giving this movie a little too much credit. I won't say it ends on some great, like, <laughs> you know, anti-capitalist montage, but the fact that that guy, you know, basically is defeated by this tribal woman does feel like a very powerful image. Do you think that there's any way that Hitchcock saw this movie and then reworked mm. Vertigo? Just in time. It's been a few months or something. <laughs> You're listening to the Film Comment Podcast. Sign up today for the Film Comment Letter. It's a free weekly digital newsletter featuring original film criticism and writing by Film Comment's editors and brilliant contributors. The letter delivers exclusive features, reviews, interviews, streaming picks, news, and more directly to subscribers' inboxes every Thursday before they're published on filmcomment.com the following Monday. Sign up today at filmcomment.com. Well, the thing with doubles, these doubles plots, which involve, you know, men fetishizing women, I mean, it's Pygmalion too, you know. So yeah, those movies, it's weird that those movies are related, but these narratives go farther back of men trying to remake uh, women in, you know, the image of lost or fan or imagined lovers. Which is essentially the plot of Peppermint Frat Pay, which is the movie that I was, I'm planning on talking about. But before we get there... <laughs> Mayuk, yeah. Do you wanna do you wanna jump in a little bit? Yeah, totally. Um, you know, uh, Devika was obviously talking about um, one Hindi blockbuster, and I want to talk about another, which is by no means great cinema. So I just have to offer that disclaimer, <laughs> just like right up top. Um, uh, but it is um, a 1989 movie. Uh, and called... then it, by the end, you'll just be like, and this movie will change the world. <laughs> <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> um, no, it's a 1989 movie uh, called Chalbas. Um, and it uh, is a Bollywood movie starring the late great actress Sri Devi, uh, whom I wrote about for Film Comment last year for the May-June 2020 issue. Um, but she was an actress who uh, worked across languages, uh, Tamil, Telugu, Hindi, primarily a little bit of Malayalam and Kannada. But um, she did a lot of double roles um, in her Hindi language career. Uh, and it was interesting because she, she died uh, just over three years ago. And 
I didn't see too many obituaries fixate on this performance, even though I think uh, it is one of her best from her Hindi film career. Um, it's interesting because, you know, as Divika said, Hindi cinema is ripe with so many double roles. And I usually view them as kind of a test of an actor's skill, you know. Um, a lot of these double roles usually bank on, you know, stars charisma, Amitabh Bachchan, for example, uh, who is who was the biggest, uh, you know, uh, male Bollywood star. Um, he had played so many double roles um, and so many other uh, great stars did. And I have to say when I was young, because there would be so many movies on TV with double roles, that to me was ultimate movie magic. Because when I was young, I had no idea how they got to be, you know, the same person to be in the same shot twice. And when I learned that, that, oh, you know, th this this is all like green screen and editing, that to me was my first moment of cinema is cool. <laughs> totally, right? Yeah, like yeah, parent Trap, I feel like, was the first time I, I saw that. Right. Yeah, no, that, that was uh, the gateway for me as well, Parent Trap, Lindsay Lohan. Um, I used to think that a lot of actors had twins. I, I was just not a smart child. So <laughs> I, I just thought that Lindsay Lohan had a twin. That's the common thing, right? That there's two kids playing one character because of child labor laws so you they only hire twins right. which is why right. like the olsen twins are you know they only played one character and that my friend is acting <laughs> it absolutely is uh yeah um michelle tanner one of the great right. screen performances um no so um so regarding We're coming child back Boz, to child so, boss <laughs> yeah, yeah so it's another piece of great cinema um so um real quick it is about uh, it takes kind of a common trope in hindi cinema which is you know two twins who are switched at birth and they have you know a very just like opposing personalities uh these two twins are named anju and manju uh i believe if i have it correctly uh, the former is someone who's very shy withdrawn grows up in an abusive household and there's some very like uh, uh disturbing scenes of abuse um which is like just um, horrible. Um, and then the other Manju is um, this like street smart girl who like grows up in the slums, quote unquote. And, you know, she's just like, she has this high pitched voice. She's very spunky, et cetera. And uh, through, you know, um, all this plot stuff, they get switched basically. They switch places without ever having like met each other. Um, you know, they meet each other in the finale. Uh, but what I love about this movie, in spite of the fact that it is just, you know, like, total like um mindless blockbuster it did very well uh, commercially um is the fact that it really allows Sri Devi to shine um she was a marvelous comic actress and you definitely see that here she had really exceptional comic timing uh but I think that what she does so beautifully is you know with that character Anju who's like the more withdrawn uh taciturn uh twin you know there was kind of, I think, um, there may have been a temptation um, to create that character into a caricature and just really lean, lean into like the farcical elements of that character and make just kind of, you know, um, make her into a simplistic um, version of uh, that trope. But Sridevi really is able to find such sincerity in that character in a way that I think that is pretty atypical of a lot of um, actors in Hindi cinema who've played double roles, you know, I really can't quite think of uh, someone who's done it as well as she did. You know, there was no reason for her to make that performance as moving as she made it, you know, uh, because again, this is just kind of mindless entertainment. Um, so I, <laughs> the reason I'm talking about this is because I feel like it's my crusade now to, uh, you know, 
shout for the rooftops like she did is one of like you know the best actresses of all time you know I, I feel like she you know should belong to that same canon that like Jenna Rowland and like Tetsuko Hara do you know in terms of like great um you know actresses from world cinema quote unquote um but I think that this movie is a very good gateway into what she was like at this stage in her career in Hindi cinema you know she was playing to the masses and this is what she could do within the confines of that kind of commercial cinema so i need to see this <laughs> yeah well i really I don't want to this. oversell it because like listen no um, you, you sold it you sold it it's sold yeah. <laughs> um well in part because i mean you know there's a thing that it seems to be about which is something that i just never not enjoy because it's always so re revealing which is the switched at birth but raised in separate um, socioeconomic circumstances that as just a, a kind of uh, cultural trope across the world is fascinating to me because particularly for like a blockbuster right where um, you are coming up with definitions for each of these worlds that people um, familiarly ascribe ascribe to those worlds and I just feel like that setup usually is telling me something about the economic moment of a place um, the cultural moment of a place. Um, and I mean, I also just think it's like a, a goofy, but revealing and so convenient, but often very telling um, uh, thing that, that films, that narratives of, of many kinds have, have engaged with. So you've already got my interest there. You said switched at birth and I was already like looking up where I could see it. I have to say that we, we actually did a brief search for this film to see if we could find any way to, to watch it. It was uh, pretty fruitless, yeah. It was kind of uh, a dead <laughs> Yeah, end. no, it used to be available on YouTube with subtitles. I was going to say YouTube. Yeah, but no, it's not. We we found like a two-hour video, which is I just got like, conned. Oh, we got conned. Guy, guy we got Rickrolled is what we got. Yeah, it was, yeah, it was pretty actually, bad. We 100% got Rickrolled, except it was like Raj rolled or something. Yeah, yeah exactly, right? Yeah, <laughs> some yeah, yeah. No, some like dude. There's like a terrible copy on Daily Motion, so I want like listeners oh. to be aware of that as well. And it doesn't have any subtitles, so uh, good luck finding it. Put your pop-up blockers on. Yeah, exactly, right? Yeah, get, yeah. God, those are yeah, pretty this brutal. is a spam. This is our regular spam alert. <laughs> right, exactly. Right. Um, but also, you know, I think something that's coming up in all the films so far is also just genres themselves are, are predicated on reiteration, um, if not doubling necessarily, but uh, the, you know, the familiarity of genre or the things that make us associate a film or a work of art broadly with a genre depends so much on the tells of similarities or the tropes or the archetypes or whatever. And um, I, it's interesting to me that so far we've all, we were all dealing with films that have um, clear genre markers um, and you know, also references to other films and other things. But I mean, Devika, even when you were speaking, I was like, oh yeah, like the the guy goes into the mountains and is seduced by the tribal woman, or you know, it's like I've seen that. I've that that is that not like a, a thing that happens quite a, a bit in, in like Hindi right. cinema. I feel like I've seen it quite a bit. That's also the way that a lot of these movies make sense. They make sense. They are yeah. nonsense, but they make sense because they've been done before. You know, you you go in and you're like, okay, yeah, they were switched at birth and now they have different personalities, but they're going to meet because we've seen it before. And um, 
Mayuk, when, uh, sorry, Cam, when you were talking, you were responding to Mayuk, I thought that's actually another theme that doubling movies often bring up is nature versus nurture, right? It's like one of the ways... Right, I was thinking that too. Uh, ...for us to understand how individuation works um, in society and the relationship between a person's looks or their biology and their environment. And they always end up learning new lessons from each other, right? the the twins, <laughs> right. the United twins. Unless it's dead ringers. Yeah, but they come from the same background. I guess the, their personalities are very different, right? That's the that's the idea. Yeah, yeah. I haven't seen it in a minute. I, another movie that came to mind that I want to briefly touch on real quick is uh, Desperately Seeking Susan, which is very much not about twins, obviously. Uh, but um, I think that. Now I've seen like over the past year, its reputation uh, get much better, I guess, than it was before. I don't know. I've just seen more articles and appreciation of it. Uh, this is all anecdotal. I probably have like zero evidence for this, um, but um, I think it's, <laughs> uh, it, it's such a wonderful movie by uh, the great uh, director, Susan Seidelman. And for those of you who are not familiar, it's about the uh, Stars Rosanna Arquette as um, a very bored housewife in Fort Lee, New Jersey in the 1980s, who is fascinated by these personal ads that she sees uh, in a newspaper, uh, which are pretty much love letters uh, between Susan, played by a singer you may have heard of named Madonna, um, and her lover. And she basically uh, becomes Madonna, uh, assumes her identity through uh, some weird, um, you know, happenings. She like buys her jacket, which is like this really cute bomber jacket with a pyramid. She becomes amnesiac, an amnesiac, right? That that happens. Yeah, that happens right after she buys the jacket. Oh, so, right, right, right. Yeah, okay. yeah. So Sorry. Stu with jumping, me. I'm jumping in. <laughs> yeah, that's okay. Uh, but it, it's just a totally wonderful movie. I wanted to, um, you know, briefly sing its praises. I think it's a great document of New York, um, a vanished New York, honestly. I thought you, know, you were going to say documentary. <laughs> And I was like, in a way, yeah. <laughs> yeah sure, right? Yeah. It's a great documentary. Stretching the definition here. No, uh, it's a great document of, um, you know, New York. Like, there are a lot of shots of, like, lower Manhattan, especially, like, uh, East Village, Lower East Side, before it was just, like, infected by gentrification. And I, I just, like, uh, I'm a sucker for that kind of stuff. Um, I also think that Roseanne Arquette is just terrific in this movie. And um, it's crazy. I, I, I found this, like, 1985, like a NYT article that was all about how she was like uh, sidelined some of the promotions for the movie because Madonna star was on the rise. And, you know, Rosanna Kai was the lead of this movie, yet she won uh, Best Supporting Actress at the BAFTAs for this or something. It's like, by what metric is she a supporting actress? Um, but uh, it, it's, it's really wonderful. Um, she is so, um, she basically navigates this whole movie like uh, this little girl playing dress up and i think that her performance is really so endearing and uh sincere so uh watch it if you haven't uh listeners and that's another like another really um great genre of the doubles movies where there is no resemblance but a character's obsession or desire forces a resemblance or often often amnesia is like is somebody yeah. gets and then they're right. just everybody's like oh you're that guy he was supposed to be here at this time so you right. must be him and then that person assumes oh, yeah, this yeah. identity totally like in seinfeld where they wind up on their way to a nazi rally because they steal oh my god the return of the repressed yeah, which is which is like the, the version of this that you don't want. You don't want people to 
accidentally think you're a white supremacist. Yeah. Uh, can, I, can I just say also, um, while hearing that it is deeply unfair to Rosanna Arquette that she got sidelined, I think that Madonna is an underrated actor. I think so I think too. between this movie and A Dangerous Game. Um, yes, that is a great performance from her, honestly. Oh, it's, can, but yeah, separate, separate Madonna and movies podcast needs to happen. Right. But, I, but, I, but I think that um, the lack of resemblance between the two is amazing. Is like an amazing quality in this movie, in part because also just of these two separate actors and and their energies um, and their stars. That makes right? it really exciting for me. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. The, uh, the Academy Awards didn't nominate Rosanna Arquette, right? It was just the Bafta's. no, no. Yeah, she never got nominated for an Oscar, I believe. But I believe that the Golden Globes nominated mm-hmm. her as well. But the Golden Globes are obviously, uh, you know. A little, oh, yeah, well, this, but, yeah, but canceled. They're literally canceled this year, yeah. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> yeah. Well, correct me if I'm wrong, but this movie also like a lot of people are skeptical of Rosanna Arquette's claim that she is this person or that she's when she assumes this identity because she doesn't have that like powerful charisma that they expected this character, totally. the real one, is Madonna to have, and so. Right. They're like, oh, okay. I guess that's you. All right. Well. <laughs> right. Yeah. Everyone's pretty skeptical. But then ultimately, they're right. charmed by different qualities that she does have, and totally. which is playing on also the idea of Madonna in real life and and uh, her celebrity, her rising celebrity, right. um, which is I think another aspect of this. And I do like when movies play with um, the reality of their stars and and that the way that that can intrude. Um, and this is the perfect time to do this with the idea of Madonna. I don't know where she was music-wise in her career. What yeah. year was this? It was 85, so I'm trying to think of what like album. Which album, yeah. Okay, so it was a year after Like a Virgin and before True Blue. Oh. So yeah, there, there's some variation yeah. there, I guess, you know, but I it wasn't yeah. kind of the total um, like uh, cosmetic change between like I don't know uh, erotica and like ray of light or something like that. I don't right, know. right, right, right. right. <laughs> yeah, but... I love how I know exactly what you're talking about. I feel like we're like I'm right. just like this gay vibe. <laughs> yeah, no, yeah, we're we're very sympathetic though, and it's very <laughs> it's very much like a, as a, as a gay man who listened to Madonna growing up. Yeah, totally that era, right? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Um, I was just going to say, you know, talking about Madonna's star and how that works out here. Just re- I just remembered, so Madhumati was sort of remade, not exactly, uh, but sort of remade in 2007 in this movie called Om Shanti Om, which is one of my favorite Bollywood movies of all time. And it actually stars Shah Rukh Khan as a struggling actor in, what, 70s? Yeah, 70s, 80s Bollywood or something. And... The plot is that, yeah, he's a struggling actor who falls in love with this uh, great beauty, you know, who's killed by a, a evil, rich film producer. And then he's reincarnated as a superstar in his next life. And part of the pleasure of the movie is for the first half seeing the biggest Indian movie star play a struggling actor and then uh, be born as a you know, as an actor of his stature and then realized that in his past life, he was this nobody who died a nobody's death uh, while being enamored with a big star that he sees in movies and on a billboard. 
Well, that's a good, I think it's actually a good transition to Peppermint Frappe if we want to, if we still want to talk about that, if we have time. You know, a lot of double movies are about acting. My youth already pointed this out, but like, it's not only like a tour de force of acting to have the this character, this actor on screen playing multiple parts, but it's also um, making visible that this person is acting, that there's multiple roles being embodied. And Peppermint Frappe is a 1967 film by the Spanish filmmaker Carlos Sara, who's most famous for Cria Cuervos and. Uh, the U.S., which also features uh, a double role, uh, and it features the same actress in a double role, actually, and that actress is Geraldine Chaplin, who was Sarah's partner and muse, um, and Devika's smiling. I'm kind of Sorry, to... I just love how uh, our discussion so far has been like a conspiracy wall where everything... That's the thing with doubling. It's, you know, we're constantly seeing patterns and being like, wait, and also that, and then that is like this movie... Well, because I think yeah. we, these these stories are so ingrained in in folk culture, even or even in ur culture, to borrow your description of vertigo, that like every every story comes out of in some way. This like is an anytime you tell a story or you have somebody embodying something, there's a doubling going on. I don't know. You could yeah. Now right. I'm just now I'm just <laughs> rabbit holes. I'm rolling. I'm rolling. Yeah, rabbit holes after rabbit holes. So what Peppermint Frappe tells the story of this uh, nebbishy radiologist who's sort and it opens on the shot of him cutting out pictures of women from fashion magazines. This and you just see his hands and he's and his scissors cutting out pictures of women from fashion magazines and dresses and then kind of like matching them and mixing them and moving eyes around. And it's sort of creepy and um and then it turns out this guy is visited by an old friend of his, childhood friend, who has a new wife. Uh, who's a British woman played by Geraldine Chaplin, Elena. Julian yeah, is the is the radiologist, and his upset he becomes obsessed with Elena. And she just kind of flirts with him and rebuffs his attentions. There's a part of this movie that's uh, that's sort of a pointed criticism of of materialism of the sixties, in that she's very much like into pop music and rock and what it has uh bleach blonde hair and wears large false eyelashes that she shows him and and is made up with a lot of different makeup but he becomes totally obsessed with her and uh, follows her around and keeps trying to get her attention and uh, without his friend noticing and then he notices that his assistant at his radiology clinic looks exactly like her but is much but is has brown hair and doesn't wear makeup and is also played by Geraldine Chaplin and so he begins this process of he quickly seduces her even though he's kind of just like a total klutz <laughs> and he's i mean he this actor uh looks is just has the has is like the best hangdog look jose luis jose luis lopez vasquez who i don't know if i've seen in anything else but he just looks like droopy dog kind of and throughout the film is just sort of gazing around with these giant eyes looking longingly at geraldine chaplin and i mean you can kind of see where things are going he becomes increasingly obsessed with Elena while transforming Anna, his assistant, into some version of Elena. At the same time, he also believes that he met Elena at a festival, uh, a street festival, where she was playing a drum. And he thinks that this was this woman that he met at this festival years ago, and he approaches Elena about this. She says that it's not her, but she has the same scar on her hand that he recognizes from that being her. So he's 
uh, that he recognizes from the woman at the festival. So he's not sure what's real and what's not already with, with regards to her. And I think that opens up for him some kind of like, you know, psychological vacuum that he gets sucked into and he eventually loses it to a certain extent. And Anna eventually just becomes Elena with her full complicity. And Elena is no no more. I don't want to, I kind of spoiled, but. Well, I, I don't think it's spoiled because I don't know how people would, what people would think becomes. Right. Me. She sort of, uh, through the, through, she wears the same makeup. She dyes her hair the same way. She listens to the same music. She transforms herself into this person, basically, who she already looks exactly like. But who is also well? Now you're spoiled. Well, too, too bad. Sorry, <laughs> but um, but he's also like maybe you should have already seen this movie from 1967. <laughs> it was it was a uh, quite a sensation when it came out. It was it was yeah. Um, and was, the the yeah. title comes from the fact that Julian is constantly drinking peppermint frappes, which are like creme de menthe with crushed ice. They look incredibly disgusting, and he's pouring them for everybody. And they 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 pay a they play an important role in the denouement of the, of the of the narrative when the shit hits the fan. It also at the end credits. The first thing it says is for Louis Bunuel, and so I think he's I think he's really interested in the doubling as part of like this um, surrealist game. And I think the movie is most interested in in critiquing the materialism of fascist Spain at the time, but also and the, also the emptiness of fascist Spain of the middle class and their pretensions toward foreign culture, like basically like listening to British pop music, falling in love with British women, transforming Spanish women into British women who are in, using kind of false methods. Yeah, it's a it's a really interesting movie. I don't think it's as good as Cria Cuervos or Deprisa Deprisa, which is another of his films that I really love, but is totally different than than either of the others. There you have it. That's the plot of Peppermint Frappe. What year was Peppermint Frappe? Sixty seven, I think. Could be sixty. Sixty seven. Gotta watch and it. Franco died in what, seventy five, I think. So he was making these films in Spain under the thumb of the Spanish censors. So a lot like Bunuel films, Veridiana, for example, you know, he had to change aspects of the plot that would that might directly criticize the regime or the Catholic Church. It's what's interesting. Another thing that's interesting though is that Bunuel's most famous double film is that obscure object of desire, which was not made until 1977 and was not even originally going to be a double film. So it's almost as if Bunuel's uh, was influenced by Peppermint Frappe as much as Peppermint Frappe was influenced by previous works of Bunuel. And the doubling just goes on and on. It's the recursive. It's endless <laughs> recursive loop, yeah. yes. A thing that I really value about surrealism, I feel like it can be subversive in ways that maybe the censors wouldn't pick up on. But I also am just, I was internally laughing at the, the blonde, right. the brunette thing and how... You got to feel bad for the blondes, right? Well, you just, just the idea that like, uh, 
a weak change can throw men out of whack. Another very important text that features that trope is Taylor Swift's A Video for You Belong With Me. Very important to <laughs> like 16-year-old me. A Swifty oh. has entered the chat. <laughs> because when I was in high school, that video was, you know, such a big deal. And then, of course, four years later, there was some think piece about how that mm. video is uh, sexist and, you know, has really this... really dating yourself, Tabitha. Feminine... You should be careful. <laughs> I've come a long yeah. way. I've come a long way. Right. <laughs> but you know, there was, I remember there was these, there were these think pieces about how the movie makes out the dark head version of Taylor Swift to be uh, evil and how that dark head version is also the sexy one. And the blonde version right. is the good girl next door who doesn't wear heels. Who There's a line that goes, you know, she wears uh, high heels, I wear sneakers. <laughs> and there was this whole thing about, um, I feel like there was this whole discussion about how this is this recurring trope of the male imagination and how uh -huh. dark hair is somehow really has been linked to that uh, right. and blondness to purity. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. I was thinking blondness is often linked to uh, superficiality and dark hair is linked to some sort of, yeah, like, right. you know, deeper sp spirituality or like. I, I think you, you know. guys got to. You got to do a blondes versus brunettes episode, right. I feel like. Well, because, yeah, and, and Peppermint, the blonde, is is the British uh, Geraldine, right? And it and in the context of talking about, I mean, you read on the, the politics of it and its critique of materialism and all these things. Yeah, that would be the blonde, or uh, according to movies, according to movies and not according to movies in Taylor Swift, not according to me. Just want to be clear about that. I think that Taylor Swift maybe <laughs> maybe got to the same point faster. I mean, she's a more efficient critic of of society, you might even say, than Carla Sara. She is a surrealist. I would she's say. absolutely a surrealist. Yes. Um, also, <laughs> no. okay, yeah. Oh. I will stop there. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I know. I have to stop myself, but no, I need to rewatch Peppermint Pepe. I, I when I saw it for the first time, I was I was. Uh, in a Geraldine Chaplin phase, as one has. I love how all of us are, every, all the movies we picked, we are like, this is not great cinema, but I love it. Except except for me starting with, I would literally die for Femme Fatale. <laughs> yeah, and yeah. I just figured that's what the rest of you were going to say. Well, um, yours sounds like it's the, I think Femme Fatale really does sound like it's complex in a way that like for will yield. I can't new, even, will yield don't like even new get readings. me started. Constantly. It is also ridiculous. No offense, Cam, but it is ridiculous no, it is in a pleasurable way. But you know, it's incredibly ridiculous. Right, right. Ridiculous art can yield constant new readings. You know, that's and that the Palma can do that. Yeah. Yeah, I was watching it with a roommate. I I already mentioned this to Mayuk and Clint. Um, and my roommate was just puzzled by why you chose this film can <laughs> you know what she was like does he think this is a good film or did he just choose it because there are wow. doubles in it and i said i think he thinks it is an interesting film at the very least i think it's one of the great films of <laughs> the 21st century so i mean and i probably if you'd watched peppermint frappe we'll have to cut this because now you can't just be like <laughs> dissing your roommate so or being like your roommate could not appreciate the brilliance of femme fatale she's just not capable of it but i wanted to say this my my um roommate was saying you know i was trying to explain like you know yeah it's ridiculous but it's campy you know there's a ple there's pleasure in its campiness and she was saying well 
I don't think of this as camp. I think of John Waters as camp. I think of Basic Instinct as camp. To me, for me, camp has to be fun. And this movie is too self-serious to be fun. I thought that was interesting. I mean, then it went into a, well, oh. according to theories oh of camp, uh, you know, it kind of went into this. Well, uh, but thrillers are camp. Two women hooking up in a bathroom at Cannes is... A signal, I think, yes. of how serious this movie is. The outfit that that model wears on the con red ca- carpet, it does not get more fun than that, you know? I mean... Also, I mean, the presence of Antonio Banderas <laughs> is not always a signifier, but, it, you know, it's not always just but, like yeah. a, a red light blinking, but often it helps. It's a guiding post. It's a guidepost. It does. Yeah. It does. And he's a good simp in this. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, he has the power of the camera, but as a man, he has no power. Seeing Rebecca Romaine pull a gun on him in this movie is one of the great joys of my life. And I will leave you with that. I am not on Brian <laughs> right. De Palma's payroll, but uh, I should be I, for, the, for the things I do for this movie. You should yeah. be. I mean, you need to invoice him for this podcast. <laughs> Also, Defend, Passion, another Brian De Palma double project. But anyway, sorry. I think it's good that we end where we began, though. We've kind of, we've kind of come full circle yeah, and God. have doubled okay. our conversation here. <laughs> like Femme Fatale. Just like Femme Fatale. Amazing. Well, thank you so much, both of you. Mayo, thank you for doubling up this week. And, you know, in the in the film comment universe and Cam, we hope to have you back again uh, for our triples <laughs> podcast. Uh, and then for the Madonna, yeah. Madonna, the screen Madonna star podcast. Yeah, oh, yeah. And I are scholars. So yeah. yeah. <laughs> hey, you just want to record let's, another one right let's now? Do let's it. just let's just get it in. Yeah, well, I got to get my notes together. Um, <laughs> right. I have to get my dossier ready, but I'm ready. Like, like, uh, like Dick Tracy, like, I, you don't understand how ready I am. What's that Shanghai surprise? Is that like the really bad one that she was in? Yeah. Sorry. Oh yeah. I mean, Taylor Swift was also in a movie, by the way. It was an anthology uh, movie called I Love New York or something. Just saying, you know, I mean. Was Madonna yeah. in a movie with Dennis Rodman or was that like a different movie that Dennis Rodman was in? That feels like a familiar image in my head. I think they just dated, but I have this like movie poster image of the two of them. And he was blonde at that time, I think. Yeah. Wasn't he? During his Madonna era. Was she a brunette? Because that would be wild. Be, I don't, I don't know. I'm going to have to look into it. <laughs> well, thank you so much to both of you for joining us. And we hope to have you back again very soon. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. Yeah, it was. Thank you. The Film Comment Podcast features original music by Greg Einge. Film Comment is a publication of film at Lincoln Center. Since 1962, Film Comment has been the home of independent film journalism, publishing in-depth interviews, critical analysis, and feature coverage of mainstream, arthouse, and avant-garde filmmaking from around the world. Visit us online at filmcomment.com. Thank you.